Hello and welcome to another installment of the Codcast from Commonwealth Magazine. I'm Michael Jonas. Democrats lost the White House. They're out of power in Congress. What they have left is the ability to speak out forcefully against Donald Trump and the Republicans in charge. That's something Congressman Seth Moulton has been doing bigly, you might say. My colleague Bruce Mole and I talked to Moulton for this week's Codcast. Second-term congressman from the North Shore has emerged as one of Trump's fiercest critics, especially on foreign policy, which Moulton knows something about, having led Marine platoons in Iraq. When I asked him how Trump's first hundred days have gone compared to what he expected, Moulton said the new president has, quote, lived up to my worst fears. He said Trump has been as hateful, divisive, and dangerous as he seemed during the campaign. And he said an air of general incompetence seems to prevail at the White House. Moulton has plenty to say about Trump, foreign affairs, and what the Democratic Party needs to do nationally to connect with working-class voters. But we started out by discussing a local project, the North-South Rail Link. Moulton has become the highest-profile elected official championing the idea of connecting North Station and South Station by underground tunnel. Some see it as a mini-big dig with all the nightmares that conjures up. Moulton calls it the single most transformative, infrastructure project that's being contemplated in all of New England. Moulton also had some interesting things to say about Charlie Baker when Bruce brings up the governor, agreeing that they share some traits, but making clear that he's also been willing to criticize Baker when he thinks he's wrong, including on the issue of Syrian refugees. I asked him naturally whether he's considering running for governor. Let's hear what he had to say. Congressman Seth Moulton, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So we want to get into a uh, discussion of uh, uh, the affairs of the world and Washington and Congress and, and uh, President Trump. But before that, we thought we'd start out with something a little closer to home, and that is the North-South Rail Link project, which is a, a, a big uh, rail project that's been kicking around in Massachusetts for several decades. Uh, and you have emerged as a big champion of this idea of, uh, of, of a tunnel that would run underneath downtown Boston and would connect North Station and South Station. Uh, give us a little sense for, for the argument for the North-South Rail Link. It's sort of been described as either you know, a visionary project that would, uh, would uh, launch us into 21st century transportation in Eastern Mass, or some people uh, see it as kind of a nightmare-inducing, uh, uh, you know, reminder of, of all the things about the big dig that that, that caused a lot of uh, upheaval. But uh, I heard you last week at the Chamber of Commerce, and you were pretty uh, pretty strong in, in asserting uh, that uh, you, you see it in the visionary camp. So give us a little sense of that. Well, absolutely. And I understand why people may be skeptical because I was skeptical at first, but I have come to believe that it is the single most transformative infrastructure project uh, that's being contemplated in all of New England. Uh, It will lead to massive economic development, uh, access to jobs all over the state for people who right now don't have access to many of the fastest growing uh, job areas, and faster than driving times all around Massachusetts. So it will mean that every train from the north will flow through the tunnel to the south and vice versa. So it's not just about connecting North and South Station. It's about, it's about actually making sure that the entire region is interconnected and that you can get from one part of the state to the other much more quickly than you can right now by driving. 
part of part and parcel with this would be uh, getting new commuter rail trains to um, to echo what you see in places like London and Paris, where people want to ride the trains because they're so nice. Uh, they don't see them as just some you know alternative that you have to take at rush hour if the roads are too congested, but rather a faster, nicer, more convenient way to move around. But it's taken me a long time to understand the project and to come out as a big supporter. One of the first things I had to understand was just how much it would cost and how it would get built. And when you look at these projects around the world, there are actually a lot that are just like the North-South Railic. It turns out that having uh, rail stations on the periphery of cities is very common. And many cities, about three dozen, have chosen to correct, connect them uh, with underground rail links. London right now uh, has, has one rail link that's in service, another that just was completed on time and, on, and under budget, and another uh, that is just being approved. And these all three projects are actually much bigger scale uh, than what we're contemplating for Boston. But they're built with tunnel boring machines that go right under uh, the heart of the city, much deeper uh, than we saw with the dip, big dig. And, and, and they don't create any surface disruptions. So when people are concerned that this might be like another big dig, um, it's just a totally different engineering technique. Uh, when you look at the cost of these projects around the world, we have a lot of experience with them now because so many cities are doing them. Um, and it actually makes the, the cost relatively comparable to what the governor right now is planning to do to uh, spend on expanding South Station. Uh, incidentally, we did not find a single city around the globe that's trying to expand a stub-end terminal like South Station. That's a very 19th century solution to a 21st century transportation problem. And it's super inefficient because it takes about eight and a half minutes uh, for a train to come in, unload all its passengers at South Station, or the same happens at North Station, and then get backed out empty and put in a storage yard. It also means that you have to have massive storage yards, which take up some of the prime real estate development areas of the city, like Wadette Circle, um, like Beacon Park Yards, where Harvard wants to expand its campus, um, but the T is talking about building a new rail yard just to support an expanded South Station. Uh, in contrast, when you have the link, the trains uh, unload at South Station in a space of about 30 seconds to, to a minute, um, go on to a central uh, station, do a quick stop at North Station, and then continue on north of the city. And, and the same thing, of course, happens in reverse with trains going to the south. It also means that the Northeast Corridor would finally be connected from Maine and New Hampshire through uh, New York, uh, Washington, and Virginia. And so what all this means is that it connects people to jobs and to housing. So if you, if you want a job in the, in the South Boston Seaport, which is the fastest growing uh, place in the entire region right now, uh, you'll be able to live in a place like Lynn or Lowell or Manchester by the Sea, uh, which is just impractical right now because it takes longer to get all the way um, uh, in, it, it takes as long to get all the way from, uh, from Manchester, say, uh, into the city as it does to then get um, over to the South Boston Seaport. So whether you want to be an executive to work at one of these new biotech firms or a janitor at one of these biotech firms, you'll be able to get there maybe twice as fast with this rail link. And that means all these companies will have access to twice the workforce, um, and all the employees will have access to two or three times the number of jobs. Yeah, and I have to say that when, when you laid out the, the, the statistics or the, uh, you know, the, the comparison of what's happening in other cities and this idea that there's no other city that's engaging in a major uh, expansion of a, of a so-called stub-end station, and there are you know, several dozen that are sort of linking 
stations across town. It, 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 I found that a pretty convincing argument. And I always wonder, you know, we talk always about sort of Boston or Massachusetts exceptionalism. And, you know, sometimes we're out in front on things and we sort of feel like we're leading the way. But other times uh, when we sort of stand alone, uh, in a case like this, it sort of raises the question of whether we're an outlier in a bad way. And, and I mean, the way you presented it certainly makes it seem like, uh, you know, like like we kind of are, you know, have our head in the sand on this, that the idea of instead of the money on the South Station expansion, that we should be looking at this rail link uh, almost comes off as a no brainer. Is it? But it's clearly not something that has, uh, you know, has has been embraced by state transportation leaders or the governor or others uh, at well, this point. They're 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 still betting on the South Station expansion as the way to go. You know, um, I think everybody knows that uh, that railroads in, in America are way behind the rest of the globe, and a lot of people just don't uh, realize uh, what advancements have been made. Um, there have also just there also just have been a lot of advances in tunneling technology. Um, you know, with the big dig, we had to tear up all of downtown Boston, um, going from the top down, stopping for every sewer pipe, every water pipe, uh, every uh, 18th century piece of a clay pot that we found, you know, um, uh, along the way. And that's simply not necessary when you use these tunnel boring machines that go under the city. So, so things have changed and things have evolved. But it's really important that we stay competitive with the rest of the globe. If we want to be a world-class city, uh, we're going to have to keep up. And just expanding, adding seven tracks to South Station really isn't going to get us there. And the, and the job now, in some ways, I think, as you've laid out, is to make the case to get you know, the business community on board and ultimately... Uh, state leaders and, and the thinking is that you need those those constituencies in order to make a, a credible case for the federal money that would be uh, would have to be part of this is that is that right that's absolutely right and we have a f uh, a quickly growing uh, coalition um, we have a lot of uh, uh, you know Boston City Council members um, members of the delegation uh, the federal delegation uh, city town managers mayors uh, we have an awful lot of people who are coming on board this coalition and also a lot of business leaders um, I mean literally almost everybody I've sat down with um, and then just give them the facts, you know, explain the presentation, explain the, the, the research that my team and I have done um, before I came out to support this. And uh, it's a very convincing case. Yeah, you use the term no-brainer. That's actually the, the, the words that um, a private sector infrastructure investor used when he came in to look at the project. We invited a big fund that invests in infrastructure projects like this just to give us, you know, a private sector perspective. And he said that this is exactly the kind of project that they would like to uh, invest in, and he he said it was a no-brainer. I can He said I can't believe you would consider uh, expanding a South Station when you could do uh, this rail link for 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 not much more in upfront costs. And and actually, the cost overall um, is going to be lower because uh, I mentioned these rail yards, these vast rail yards that will be required for South Station expansion. When you look at the lost real estate value of all that land, um, and you realize how much real estate value you would gain. Uh, if you did the rail link instead, it actually makes the rail link a less expensive project than expanding South Station. And and, and this is something that really surprised me even when I looked uh, at the project. Uh, but it's one of the reasons why these investors say this is this is a no-brainer. I was surprised. I was at a uh, tea meeting last week uh, where they were going over a study that they were going to do uh, 
spending about a million dollars looking at or envisioning what commuter rail will look like 10, 20 years from now. And not once during the presentation on that was there any mention of connecting north and south stations, um, which was a little troubling because I know the state is going to spend some money to study this issue a bit more. Um, could you tell us, if, if this was approved, do you envision commuter rail changing a bit? Because uh, right now it's sort of spokes on a wheel coming into the center of Boston. Do you envision it becoming more subway-esque? In other words, you know, you could come in and, and then head out west, or you'd head come in from the west and then head south or, or north. Do you see it more like that, or do you see it staying much the same way? No, Bruce, you're absolutely right. And what other cities call this is transforming from a commuter rail system to a regional rail system, uh, where you have frequent service every 10 or 15 minutes um, to all regions of the state, uh, including far outside of Boston. Uh, you know, one of the criticisms of the Big Dig was that it really only benefited bo downtown Boston. Uh, I mean, this project will benefit everybody uh, that's on a rail line, even those out in Springfield who would have more uh, frequent service and would be able to come into a central station in Boston and continue on that same train uh, further north or further south or, or just step off and, and wait for just a couple minutes on the platform and transfer to a train coming on that same track going to another part of the state. So it dramatically improves uh, regional connectivity and, and that's what's meant by a regional rail system. We would also envision, by the way, having completely new electric um, quieter, faster, much nicer uh, commuter cars uh, or rail cars, uh, just like you see in much more modern commuter rail systems. But I think the reason why the T doesn't bring this up is because this is really not what the T is doing. I mean, the T, you know, is very wedded to this old-fashioned 1950s-era diesel-powered commuter rail system, which they've invested in uh, to date. And they, I th I'm just afraid that they're really out of touch um, with what's going on in the rest of the world. So um, don't expect the T to lead on this. And in fact, I've said I don't think the T should construct this. I think the T's track record for construction projects is absolutely atrocious. And so this should be done by a public-private consortium. Um, we've seen consortiums like this come together to do these projects in other parts of the globe, and even in, in other parts of America as well. And I think that's much more uh, effective, accountable way uh, to deliver a project like this to the, to the taxpayer. But obviously, that leaves the T out, and so maybe that's why they're not talking about it. And, and you got uh, convinced of this, you know, not, not right away upon taking office, but uh, you did a little due diligence and some studies of, well, I should of be how this is working. Yeah, we did a lot, Michael, because uh, when I came in, uh, I had a little bit of background in transportation. Right, uh, you'd worked in Texas, did I have that right? That's right. I actually worked on as a project manager of a high-speed rail project in Texas. So a little bit different than a regional rail project. These were 200-mile-per-hour trains. Uh, they're building a, a line between Dallas and Houston. Uh, so that was my background. So Governor Dukakis knew this, and he's been a longtime proponent of this project, along with Governor Weld. And he said, Seth, we need you on board. And I said, Governor, with all due respect, I need to do the diligence first. And so we actually did about a year's worth of diligence uh, tapping into some of the folks I know in the industry, both um, internationally um, and right here in America, to really uh, get an expert perspective on this uh, with my team. And it was only after doing that diligence, including going to London and walking through the tunnels and seeing how they're building 
uh, Crossrail, uh, which is their version of the North-South Rail Link. It's about ten times as big, but um, but it's their version. To go, um, you know, just uh, just getting completed right now in London. Uh, it was doing all that before I came out in support of it, but um, but my support now is unequivocal, and I've just come to learn that you know big projects like this sometimes really really good ideas need champions, and you know many of the um, the best infrastructure projects that uh, are now famous uh, were little known or controversial at the time. Uh, you know, San Francisco was defined by the Golden Gate Bridge, but if you if you look at the history of building the Golden Gate Bridge, uh, it was it was controversial at the time, and a lot of people thought that it wasn't necessary or it would be too expensive. Now, we can't even imagine San Francisco without that bridge now, uh, but that bridge needed a champion, and I think this rail link does too. And I guess you know. The old uh, time will tell uh, adage might might fit here because there is this state uh, appropriation for a study, and, and from what I understand, they're going to make the award of uh, the firm to carry out that study sometime in the next month or so, and they in turn will have about a year to deliver a report. Uh, I mean, are you think is that going to be a critical part of uh, of this decision making process? Well, to be honest, I would say it's a small step forward because this, the study is very, very small. Uh, a $2 million study uh, in the transportation world is, um, many people consider it not even very serious. We've worked uh, with the Secretary of Transportation to put as much as we can into this study. Uh, but many other transportation studies that the state has done in recent years are more around the $30 million mark. So we expect this study to be a step in the right direction. Um, but it's not going to get the project done in and of itself. Right. All right. So it's going to take, uh, as you said, uh, some uh, you know championing by folks like yourself who are out there pushing it, I guess. That's right. And I expect to see a lot more people from the business community coming on board. Because when people start to appreciate the, the benefits that this will bring to employment, to the job market, um, to businesses, uh, not just downtown but throughout the state, uh, I think uh, a lot more people will become supportive. And, and it's really building that broad-based coalition uh, that's not dependent on any particular politicians or any particular political party or anything else. But people just realize that uh, all politics aside, this is just a good investment for the people of Massachusetts. Uh, when folks realize that, I think we'll get a lot more momentum. But it's building already. Uh, it's, it's amazing how much progress mm -hmm. we've made in, in just the last six or 12 months. All right. Well, speaking of uh, of political parties and those issues, let's shift gears a little bit and talk talk about what's going on uh, in Washington and more broadly, really, you know, across the globe. Uh, you have uh, been certainly among the you know most most uh, vocal uh, members of Congress in speaking out against a lot of the moves uh, of the new president. I guess I'd sort of take note that I, you know at the time he was sworn in, you you made the point that unlike, you know, some of your colleagues, you did plan to attend the inauguration, uh, but you said it was really, out, you know, out of respect for the office itself. And I guess I'd have to say after that moment, in terms of your uh, regard for the uh, the man in the office, there has not been much, uh, much love lost. And you've been, uh, you know, you've just been, you know, outspoken on one issue after another, uh, you know, even at one point, I guess, in an interview in March, comparing his rise to uh, the election of Hitler in, in Germany in the 1930s. I saw uh, a piece on your campaign website when he made a comment, uh, uh, a reference to Saddam Hussein, and your headline on your campaign website was the, the latest piece of bile from Donald Trump is personal. I mean, how do you how do you how do you see these first hundred or so days? Is it 
is it as bad as you had feared or is it is it worse or a little better well i'd say it's uh it's it's lived up to my worst fears and it's actually worse than most people realize who are not in Washington. A lot of people ask me, you know, Seth, from your perspective down there, uh, is it as bad as we think or as bad as the media portrays it? And when I talk to people inside the White House, it sounds even worse. It sounds more chaotic. Um, there's, there's, there's just general incompetence. Um, people are playing politics with national security and um, with the lives of Americans. It's a really frightening situation. But you know what? I gave the president a chance. I went to the inauguration. I listened to what he said. Uh, but from day one, uh, he has been just as hateful and divisive and, frankly, dangerous to our Constitution and to our security as he was during the campaign. And so that's why I've just been outspoken. And, and just speaking the truth, you know, we, we live in a world now uh, where, where Donald Trump has, uh, you know, pushed the idea that you can have fake news, alternative facts, and people don't care what reality is. Well, I'm just speaking up and speaking the truth. And that means being critical to folks on both sides of the aisle. I mean, if you remember, uh, I was outspoken with my criticism against President Obama when I disagreed with his foreign policy. Um, but his mistakes have paled in comparison uh, to Donald Trump's mistakes. And, and, and I really fear that they are dangerous for our country and for our democracy. And, and do you just think, especially on, in terms of foreign policy, is it, is, there, is it just utterly incoherent? Or what is the Trump, what is the Trump doctrine, if you could say that? No one has any idea. <clears throat> because in the one, on, on one minute, he is, um, he's cozying up to Russia. Um, and warning them when he's going to uh, bomb uh, a base in Syria where there are Russian troops so the Russian troops can get out of the way. Um, and then the next minute, uh, he, he's, he's criticizing them. Uh, one minute, he's uh, strongly opposed to China and being very belligerent, calling them a currency manipulator. And then all of a sudden, he realizes he might need their help on North Korea, so he totally changes their changes his tune. Um, he's literally been all over the map, and it's it's incoherent, it's irresponsible. Um, even his own advisors, uh, you know, sort of throw up their hands and say, we, we you know we don't know what's going to happen, we don't know where this is where this is going to go, and that's a very dangerous place for the United States to be, uh, and for our troops overseas. You know, uh, when I was a Marine in Iraq, I I didn't agree with the war, but I knew what my mission was. And I knew what we had to do to, to get peace in that country. I knew what political endgame we were trying to achieve with our military action. Uh, I've talked to the troops today, and, and, and they don't seem to know. I mean, they don't have a mission. They don't have a clear goal in Syria. Um, we don't know where things in Afghanistan are headed. And we're getting all sorts of mixed messages about Iraq. Uh, even the Iraqis are getting very mixed messages about Iraq. On the one hand, saying, uh, you're our key allies that we want to support with a lot of training and weapons and materiel. Uh, but then if you try to come to the United States, uh, we're going to refuse you to come here. Um, and that's another place where, of course, uh, Donald Trump said that Iraqis are banned from the U.S. And then he changed his mind a few days later when he realized uh, that they're actually our allies in the war on terror. So he's just absolutely all over the place. And that's very dangerous for our troops and our citizens. And, and how do, uh, you know, how do Democrats operate in this environment and, uh, and, and, and have, have some impact on, on the direction things are heading in? Or how, how have you chosen to sort of think about that and the role that, that you can play? 
Well, there's a few things I'm doing. First of all, I'm just standing up to Donald Trump. I'm not afraid to uh, come out and, and tell the truth and criticize him where he, um, uh, when he's wrong, which seems to be just about all the time. Um, I'm also willing to work with him if he, if he actually comes out with some good ideas. And, and, and the one thing I did support that he did is I, I said that it was the right thing for him to respond forcefully to the use of sarin gas in Syria. And, and, I, and I praised him for that. In fact, I was the first member of Congress to release a bipartisan statement on that Tomahawk missile attack. So uh, I'm, I'm very much um, not shy in criticizing Trump, um, but I'm also going to be honest uh, uh, when, when he's doing things that are right uh, or when I can work together with Republicans. The second thing I'm doing is I'm really trying to uh, reform the Democratic Party. I think Democrats have to come to terms with the fact that we lost. We lost badly in the last election, and we've lost several elections in the House and Senate before that. And so people aren't hearing our message, or we're not listening enough um, to people throughout the country. And we've got to do better with that. So I challenged um, uh, Leader Pelosi to um, allow other people to run and other people to have voices uh, in the caucus. Um, in the House of Representatives. Right. I've been working hard to recruit new candidates. In fact, I've been called the number one recruiter in, among House Democrats. I've got a lot of veterans who are interested in running in particular. Uh, and I've been calling for the party to pay attention more to the economic needs of, of people who have been really left out of this economic recovery, who haven't and, seen and any of the benefits that, that, that the coastal cities have seen. And you supported uh, uh, Congressman uh, Tim Ryan of Ohio, who challenged uh, Nancy Pelosi for the Democratic that's leader, right, I did. Your post and, and his argument, and I, I guess it sounds that's that's sort of in sync with your your view. I mean, he he certainly talked about this need to speak to uh, you know more voters in the heartland and and you know in these states that that you know some of which were quite a surprise flipped to the the Republican column in the presidential race and where the you know the word had been that a lot of voters there, working class voters felt uh, you know alienated from the Democratic. Party or its agenda. Uh, That's for, right. For, and, for dealing with their issues. And Michael, that leads me right into the third thing I'm doing, which is I'm really trying to understand uh, the economic challenges of America. And I think most people realize today that, that immigration is just a scapegoat. The jobs are not just going overseas, they're getting automated out of existence. I think a lot of Americans are standing on a factory floor today, not worried that their manager is going to hire an immigrant to replace them, but rather worried that, uh, that their manager is going to hire a ro robot to replace not only their job, um, but their five buddies' jobs next to them. And that's what's happening throughout our country today. And, and we've got to come to terms with that. <clears throat> we can't uh, pretend it's not happening, as, uh, as Trump's uh, Treasury Secretary just said. He said that uh, the coming age of automation is 50 to 100 years out, so we're not even thinking about it right now. Well, I think that's a huge, huge mistake. And I think most Americans realize that. And so I'm trying to lead the discussion on how we adapt to a world where we're going to work with a lot of robots, where a lot of jobs are going to be automated. And yet we still have to make sure that everybody in America has a chance, that everybody in America has the opportunity uh, to realize the dream of being a part of a growing middle class. And, uh, and too many people are being left out of that right now. Trump's answer is to go backwards, to go back into the coal mines. Even the coal miners will tell you that there are no more, there are no more jobs there. I think there are so about 50,000 coal mining jobs in all of America, and we created 51,000 solar jobs just last year. So we've got to be focused on the future, and that's something that I'm very focused on myself right now. Do you think other Democrats are joining you in that view, or it sort of seems like 
the the two parties are are moving farther to the fringes than ever uh and and fighting harder against each other uh whereas you said you were trying to you know praise trump when he does something well and but speak truth to him it sort of seems like the 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 knee-jerk reaction among democrats is to move perhaps further left and and oppose trump on just about everything well, we just have to oppose Trump on the things that don't make sense for Americans. And, and, and I believe that the future is to get out of this bitter partisanship uh, where you don't oppose someone just because he or she is a Republican, but you, you really talk about policies. And you, that also means coming together uh, where it makes sense. And uh, I've ver I was very proud to be named the vice chair of the bipartisan working group in the, in the House. Uh, I mentioned I was the first to release a bipartisan statement on uh, Trump's action in Syria. I'm looking for every opportunity I can to work across the aisle on places where it makes sense um, to, you know, to, to, to work together to do what's good for Americans. Uh, I believe that that's fundamentally what Americans want. They don't want just more partisan bickering in Washington. They want us to get things done. And a lot of times getting things done means coming together across the aisle. It sort of sounds, the way you're talking, you sort of sound like you're a Democratic version of Charlie Baker, the governor here in Massachusetts. Are there similarities between your two styles? Well, there's some similarities. I mean, um, you know, uh, I think I have a good relationship with the governor. There are a lot of places where we're working together. Um, I've also been willing to criticize him. Like when he said that he didn't want Syrian refugees to come to Massachusetts, I said, I think that's wrong. Uh, and, I, and I think we we're able to change his mind on that. Um, but, you know, the thing about uh, the thing that people respect about Charlie Baker is, is I think that he really does just look at the facts and try to do the right thing for Massachusetts. It doesn't mean that he and I always agree. Um, but he's not afraid to work with the Democratic legislature. Uh, I'm not afraid to work uh, with the Republican leadership in, in the House or the Senate if it means that we can do good things for Americans. Uh, great. Well, we're probably running up against our, our, our time limit here, but I did want to sort of circle back just one sort of bit of political news uh, as we're recording uh, the, the podcast this week is that there was uh, there were some stories in the papers just today about uh, the first quarter fundraising results for members of Congress, and you were uh, leading the pack uh, among the House members in, in Massachusetts. And there was, uh, you know, the stories certainly connect this to uh, the anti-Trump sentiment out there among the Democratic base. Is that, do you, I mean, do you have a feeling that that's sort of energizing people, and is that part of uh, what's, what's leading to fundraising uh, success that you've enjoyed? Well, well, I think it is because I actually have been spending less time fundraising uh, than I usually have to. Uh, it's a terrible part of the job. I hate having to do it, um, but it's unfortunately necessary until we're able to be successful in getting money out of politics. But I've been so active in standing up to Trump that I haven't had much time for fundraising this, this past quarter. But an awful lot of people have been reaching out from across the country and saying, hey, you know, we support what you're doing. We support people who are willing to stand up and speak truth to power. And, uh, and, and I know that that's a part of, uh, of, of the fundraising numbers. So that's a pretty nice way to raise money, just to have the dollars flow in without, uh, without having to go out there and, and hold, the, uh, hold the events. Well, it always takes work, but um, I'm right. proud of the support that I've, that I've gotten from right. people who say, you know, look, it's time for a change. And I think it's a lot of people who are also saying it's time uh, for change in the Democratic Party. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, people who are willing to be reformers are, are going uh, to get their support. Right. And I guess, you know, the, the, the natural question that in inevitably gets asked is we're always 
wondering whether people in office are looking to to a to a higher perch. So, you know, there's been talk whether you'd consider a run for governor uh, uh, against Baker, or or looking at the a Senate race, or or even something yeah. beyond that. What's your uh, what's your current thinking I'm on that? My current thinking is I'm not considering any of it. Uh, I'm very proud to be uh, a representative. I'm always open uh, to, to opportunities, but um, I'm very happy with my job right now. And in fact, I think we have an awful lot more work to do for the people of Northeast Massachusetts. So, All right, great. Well, Thanks Congressman Seth Moulton, I really appreciate it. Thank you for joining us here on the podcast for my colleague, Bruce Mole. This is Michael Jonas. You can subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud or iTunes. Uh, Listen in every week here. And uh, thanks again to the congressman. And we'll see you next time. Time shakes. Found you at the water.